Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Welcome to the Society for the History of Children and Youth podcast. My name is Josefine Vela. I am a historian of education working as a research assistant at the BBF Research Library for the History of Education at the DIPF Leibniz Institute for Research and Information Education in Berlin. I'm also a PhD candidate at the History of Education Department at the Humboldt University Berlin. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Anna Catherine Kendrick, who is working as a clinical associate professor of literature and director of global awards and scholarships at the NYU Shanghai. Anna holds a Master of Philosophy and a PhD from the University of Cambridge and a BA from Harvard University. In the next half an hour, we are going to talk about her book, which is entitled Humanizing Childhood in Early 20th Century Spain, which was published in 2020 in Cambridge by Legenda as part of their series Studies in Hispanic and Lusophone Cultures. Anna's book won the 2021 First Book Award from the International Standing Conference for the History of Education and was recipient of the Publication Prize of the Association of Hispanists of Great Britain and Ireland in 2016. Anna's research interests focus on Spanish literature and intellectual thought, on the history of education and child studies, as well as on the aesthetics in literary modernism. First of all, a very warm welcome, Anna, and many thanks for inviting me to do this interview with you. So let's jump in. Could you please say a few words about the three main parts or approaches you use in your book that come together here, the um, triade of mind, body, and spirit, and how you define mind, body, and spirit throughout your research? I mean, why these three components that are linked together and serve as a overarching framework for you to trace and address the human enigma of the child? Of course, yes. Yeah, so, um, I mean, there may be some some key terms that are helpful to bring in to, to break it down. So, so as you mentioned, the title of the book is "Humanizing Childhood in Early Twentieth Century Spain," and uh, like like the process of writing many books, I think you get sometimes to the most important idea only through the process of writing it. And as you return to it, you realize how central and how much it structures and everything else. And for me, that was this idea of hum humanizing or humanization. And I, the idea of a holistic or a human-centered and, of course, child-centered approach to education. Um, so I mentioned huma humanizing or humanization and uh, the field of pedology, the study of the child or child study. Um, and you asked me about the three uh, aspects, the three ways the book comes together. So in a Catholic context, I was interested in the um, idea of holism in body, mind, body, and spirit. So whereas we think of holistic education as a uh, new educational principle, I was interested in posing the question of to what degree uh, we should read it there or see it as a Uh, a pre, almost a pre-existing or underlying strain in that that allowed uh, educational initiatives in Spain to have a certain uh, depth or grounding. So um, 
that the, the holistic educational principle has its roots also in Spain in uh, a tradition of, of Catholic educational outreach works from the philosopher Luis Vives to others, uh, including uh, there's a priest in the uh, late mid 19th century in Granada, Spain, who had outdoor schools, uh, I think in 1864, long before we see it institutionalized elsewhere. So it's a kind of practice uh, that is lived out even before the theory takes hold. So part one mind looks at the ways that um, psychology and the field of child study allowed um, philosophers and others to engage with ideas of childhood. Uh, I look at the the field of poetry and literature and how Spain's avant-garde engaged in uh, dialogues with teachers and with ideas of the, the holistic qualities of the child's mind to pose um, a, a view of language and linguistic development that sees the world as all ripe for uh, the child's discovery and expression. Um, the second part, body, looks at biology and play and some of the ways that those theories of energy in the body, for instance, and movement coexist and go along with uh, sensory explorations. Um, Maria Montessori was active in Spain in, uh, from 1915 through to the Spanish Civil War with some interruptions. And that influence, uh, I think, is is a really interesting one in Spain, but particularly in Catalonia at that time. Um, and then lastly, uh, spirit. And that was the hardest to write, actually. It was the, the most amorphous or, or um, difficult to conceptualize because how do you define spirit? And this is not a book of, of religious philosophy in any way. Um, and so I came to a view of it as in some, in some way, that ineffable, ineffable quality. Um, and so I look at it through its inactions in art, the ways that children's drawings are used to try to understand something about the child's psyche and spirit and way of, way of being. Um, I look at uh, some art critics who analyze and discuss paintings of children across time and where and how we see their humanity develop. Um, and finally, um, in poetry and in philosophy and, and how a range of, of writers, including the philosopher Miguel de Unamuno um, and others, create both fictional and poetic uh, depictions of childhood and youth um, as a state of, of possibility and of beauty, in a sense. So that's where the book gets to, and it's um, uh, it opens up, of course, you know, questions that <laughs> we can continue to discuss. Thank you very much for this overview and this very, very interesting. So um, I was wondering if you found traces of practices of how it was done in those open-air schools, and could you say a little bit about the pedagogical setting or the space where this involves? Well, I think I, I spend the most time, and the cases I know best are private initiatives, but there are efforts from the early 20th century to make outdoor education a part um, of the larger curriculum. Um, there are letters and, and proposals put forward to change school architecture, for instance, uh, to have you know, open play spaces on the roofs of buildings. Uh, so, so Madrid and Barcelona as well, I'm thinking right now of a case in, in Madrid, were 
like many cities in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, very crowded, suffering from um, disease and infection and, and sort of questions of hygiene, of course, play into this too. Um, and so efforts were made to bring children from the city to the outdoors. And um, in Spain, this happens in many cases through something called the Free Institute of Education, the Institución Libre de Enseñanza, which has uh, summer colonies and, and sends students to the beaches, um, Spain famously being <laughs> surrounded by water other than with uh, Portugal on its uh, western edge uh, side. So up in the north in particular, uh, sanatoria on the, the coastline, and many some teachers who were trained there then go on to create their own small homegrown schools in, in backyards and gardens on, on the edges of cities. Uh, in, in Madrid, I track one particular teacher who had worked in um, the beach seaside sanatoria and then starts her own little almost garden school in Madrid in um, the late 1920s. And in Barcelona, we have uh, schools like um, the Escuela del Mar, the School of the Sea, which has incredibly beautiful, grand, um, pavilion-like beach uh, setting and was bombed during the Spanish Civil War and destroyed, but rebuilt elsewhere. And classes were held held at the beach. Uh, students had, there were a pool, there was exercise, palms, hallways, all these things that brought the indoors out and the outdoors in. And things that many innovations that you see across Europe um, and elsewhere in opening up classrooms, for instance, the, the idea of the three-walled classroom, uh, the forest schools where children are out uh, engaging in nature. And in, in Spain, this happens. I mentioned the school at the, at the seaside in Barcelona. Um, there's also one up in the hills at Montjuic, which is now a quite a famous um, touristic location. There's a World's Fair and the, the museum, the Miro Museum, and some other museums there are, are there today in Barcelona. Um, and there was a, a small school there called the Forest School that practiced many of these principles and um, had children doing all kinds of interactive activities, collecting acorns and flowers and pressing them and drawing maps of their neighborhoods and um, really um, you know, just studying the physiology of the body and, and putting all those pieces together in a very lived way. So I find that really exciting. And I'm sure these are not the only places where that's being done, but to track it and trace it and look at it in the context of a place and culture and time that I study, I think that was really exciting for me. Mm -hmm. An additional question would be, can find reflections of those ideas in today's or in Spanish educational institutions or system is something that somehow survived? Could you see something about this if there were reflects until today? Have an idea if this still exists in some kind of way? Because I think for me, it sounds like it could be very familiar today also to create such places and put children outwards and from the classroom. And can we find this still in the curriculum or institutions of Spain today? Um, it's a really important question. And Spain has the, the particular historical case that it was under dictatorship for 40 years from the time that my book ends, the Spanish Civil War, which was 1936 to 1939, um, and then Franco dictatorship takes control. So those 40 years were not empty of, experiment, of experiments and the traces of many of the philosophies that underlay uh, the efforts that I look at 
in very small and limited cases do come through because you have still have educators, some of whom may have had more privilege and power and an elite status in society who could reenact, uh, re- put, put some of these, the free institute of education's practices back into action in one or two small schools that served the um, children of, of the elite or, or increasingly of, of artists and intellectuals. And so it's really interesting to hear from those who were educated at some of those schools in the 1960s, 70s, and, and um, I happened to be giving a talk uh, at some point in the last year about one of these interesting, more creative initiatives that was, was started in uh, the late 50s, early 60s, and someone on my panel happened to have gone to that school. <laughs> so um, so, th- so those traces are, are there, but um, it would be saying too much to say that they formed in any way uh, the Francoist education system because there was so much repression, so much loss, um, exile. What it does do though, and and what I would say where it comes back is in a very decisive post-transition recovery. And so from the time of Spain's transition to democracy, education actually is, I think, the sphere, um, education and literature and culture, where it's because those, because in Spain those areas, as my book tries to argue, were so linked of intellectuals promoting education and um, being active in in projects of um, bringing education to the countryside and celebrating it and, and writing about it. Because of that close link, um, as people recover, as Spain Spanish intellectuals and others are recovering that early 20th century history. Um, I think that allows space for these educational projects to be re-celebrated. And, and recently in Madrid, there have been well, many, many celebrations and, and um, exhibitions and, um, and so on that, that looked to, the, to what was so radical and special in, in many cases about the efforts that were put forward. So the harder, the other question, I guess, that you are really asking is, you know, how much of this do we see in Spanish schools and Spanish education today? Um, and you know, I, I think as in many countries, I, I was not educated in Spain, um, nor have I taught in Spain, so I, I have to have some, um, I guess, distance from uh, current educational practice, and I do look at it historically. Um, but I think my impression is that, as in many countries, the the ideals and the practices are there is some distance to what um, what is, of course. Practice when we talk about test-centered education, or the role of um, bureaucracy, or um, the ways in which students uh, engage actively with their education. These model schools exist, but some have closed. Um, I think the same pressures are there in modern education as as in any other place and setting. It's just that there happens to also be a really interesting and important guiding force in the historical memory that allows this uh, tradition to come forward and continue to act. Writing your your study is like the, the prehistory of something that happened later. And I think it's very important like to go back where it started and that it takes more than just pedagogues to helping children to develop. And I really like this, that, that you need external inputs from others and how influential they are. That's, that's a good point also because it's it's true at some point I make the statement that point to the fact that in Spanish studies, at least in Spanish cultural studies in the last few years, uh, there's been a huge focus on the figure of the child 
in Spanish literature and film. So some people listening may have seen the film Pan's Labyrinth, for instance, and that's just one example. But from uh, from the late Franco dictatorship period onward into more recent films like Pan's Labyrinth, their child figure does stand for so much um, in a historical sense. And, and many articles and books have now been written on that topic. So, so it's really important, and it's a really important way of viewing the past, but it's not my way of viewing the past. And so I was really interested by that uh, confluence, but also I think wanting to, as you say, look at the prehistory of that fascination and see uh, perhaps either where it comes from or what are the forces that shape it to later allow um, that child figure to come forward as so centrally important in a cultural moment. If possible, um, Anna, could you say anything on whether those protagonists you have uh, researched and who are less known and hidden figures, um, such as innovators, teachers, writers, intellectuals, if they are mainly male or whether a somehow dominantly male perspective existed in um, intellectual, cultural and pedagogical discussions and life during the period that you have uh, investigated and um, if gender aspects, so to say, were reflected in those debates regarding the respective and development of the child as such? I think in a, from an intellectual standpoint, uh, there is a, a, a dominant, for that reason, quite interesting male standpoint on the figure of the child or on the development of the child, especially connected to these ideas of humanity, the new man, the new child. Um, so that is certainly where I started in looking at this and, and thinking, why does childhood and education take on this really central place in uh, politics and society and culture, even from, right, including from these very central male figures of, of Spanish literature and culture. Um, but as as a you know somebody who wants to look at the entire view and also uh, not leave out the figures who were actually enacting these practices. I think it's important to note, and I think my book brings forward many of the less less known figures who, I mean, some of, some of them were um, really, really deeply engaged with these philosophical conversations as, you know, as teachers. So um, yeah, from the 19, early 1920s on, it was, I would say, I, I believe it was sort of almost equal numbers of uh, female and male teachers who were being trained at Teacher Training Institute in Madrid, and then many of the innovators and experimenters that I look at and whose writings I find and uh, excerpt were, yeah, were, were, were female uh, practitioners. So, but not only practitioners, because they know what they're doing. <laughs> they're, they're, they're practicing based on a kind of um, reading and, and thinking and absorption and integration of both international as well as um, Spanish thought. So that's not just you know the international framework of Montessori, but that's uh, someone like Gustav Freyer, who um, Maria del Mar del Pozo from from Isha has uh, written a biography on on Gustav Freyer. And right now, actually in Madrid, there's a really important movement to defend her legacy because there's been a renaming of a street, and so a, a debate, and actually people you know, heading out to the street to to have protests and to. Uh, do what they're calling pedagogical missions to defend 
her role as an innovative teacher in the 1920s and 30s as opposed and, and to, to naming to keeping her name on this street as opposed to a general uh, Miyama Stray who played very much an opposite role in the some of the debates on intellectual culture and life at that time. So it's a, a very, very representative um, kind of battle of ideas. If the book, if I were writing the book right now, I'm very confident that that uh, debate and effort would be in it to remember and celebrate the legacy of educational innovation and female innovators. Yeah, that's found it pretty interesting, and um, and I really like like ask you: Is there anything you can add when you look in a more transnational perspective? Do you see something where this could not on? I mean. Could there be a case study in another country which would be somewhat similar? Or would you say it's a very, very Spanish micro-study? Do you see like connections to other uh, movements in a common way? Or where would not this? Or is it notable in any kind of way? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think, um, as with all things, I also underwent an evolution with this question too, as I wrote from thinking, I'm just trying to find out something about Spain and, and write a book about Spain to realizing, oh no, this actually engages with some larger field and here are the people that I should be reading and thinking about in order to understand these questions better. So um, I mentioned the term humanizing at the beginning and um, I think that also allows me to say that uh, some of the goals of, of the book and where it engages would be on a Uh, phenomenological, perceptual, cultural, and literary view of childhood. And you know, while that's not necessarily new, there are, of course, great works that look at um, entire fields of children's literature and you know, childhood in literature, of course, but um, the ways in which literature, in some cases, has a very childlike quality as well, and an art, um, and the interplay between those. Um, and I'm interested, for instance, in... Um, The, uh, the French theorist Bossuet Gaston Bachelard, who writes writes about ways of childhood in the cosmos and writes about this sort of the phenomenology of childhood as a sort of added light, a kind of being in the world, and and that's a description that I use to read some poetry by, for instance, the Spanish poet uh, Jorge Guillén, uh, who writes various works on, on you know, his children and grandchildren and observing the infant. A Mexican poet that I've You know, came across since finishing the book um, and have been really interested in his writings on childhood. Uh, his name is Homero Arigas and he writes a book uh, called The Child Poet, translated by his daughter, remembering childhood in the 1950s and, and published, I suppose, in the 1970s or so. And, and many that takes also a very Proustian view. Um, Marcel Proust, who uh, starts, you know, the remembers of things past from the view of his child and remembering childhood and um, the famous Madeline scene, of course, but these kinds of moments of experience and reflection. Uh, and I've seen you know, various other memoirs and memories and, and works that take that similar kind of dream-like, memory-like approach. So I think it engages with that and allows uh, the history of education, hopefully, some ways into connecting with um, some of those more uh, cultural and phenomenological approaches to reading these sources. So that would be my, my hope. And before we close, I was wondering if you have a certain kind of quote which is very significant for you and for the book at least. Is there any quote that you would like to quote? Sure. Well, I, um, I just mentioned Jorge Guillén and I think as I step back from the book, that's really the 
the poet and the section that um, to me was, it was the most fun to write, the most enjoyable. Uh, as, a, as a literary scholar, it went to those, it allowed me to, to play on that tendency and um, training as well. And, and I just love his, his poetry. So, um, so I'll read a little bit of that. Um, for those who have seen the cover of my book, it has a view of um, painting from 1910 uh, from the painter Joaquin Sorolla, who has an entire museum in Madrid, a very uh, turn, of the, turn of the century, early 20th century, impressionist-oriented painter who was kind of considered a painter of light. And the, the work has children running through the water at the edge of the sea. And so every time then after discovering that, one, one of which is very famous, is in the Prado in Madrid, um, after discovering my cover image, I, I kept my eyes really out for poetry that had to do with this view of the sea. And, um, and even most more recently, I was seeing on Twitter, uh, there's actually an account that's celebrating one of these forgotten teachers of the 1930s who wrote a text on pedagogical work from the 1930s for children who have never seen the sea. And it's a beautiful kind of encapsulation of the role that also the sea played for Spaniards, both those who are in Madrid, landlocked, as well as those who see it as this health-giving, life-bearing force. So um, Jorge Guillén writes various poems of his watching his son splashing in the sea and the kind of sense of revelation and beauty that is in it, I think is really remarkable. So I'll read one of them in my English translation. He says, clarity of current, the circles of the rose, enigmas of snow, dawn and beach in a shell, turbulent machine, the moon's joys, with patient vigor, salt of the brute wave, instant without history, tenacious culmination of myths between things, the sea alone with its birds, abundant in grace, simple always, simple grace always, total in the glancing, sea present unity, poet of pure games without interval, divine guileless, the sea, the total sea. Um, and this is a poem called Child, Nino. So although the word child was never once in the poem that I just read, it's uh, the idea of a child and the poet, that the poet of pure games with which the poem finishes, like, makes this connection between a state of childhood that is somehow suspended between these two words, poetry and childhood, and these round shapes, uh, as well as a very violent force of brute waves of salt, wind, and all of the forces that also threaten the safety of, of childhood, but make it a very elemental connection. So I was wondering if you want to say some few words, what's your research focus by now? Is there any project, anything you would like to add, a study that is connectable? I have uh, various various projects in mind. Uh, on the one hand, I'm carrying on, for sure, carrying on my interest in history of education and uh, trying to open it up, um, in, at least in the Hispanic world. So I am collaborating with um, Parker Lawson, a colleague who works on Spanish history of education as well on a special issue to do with the what we call the education in the global Hispanophone and some of the ways that across contexts of Spain, which was my base, of course, Latin America, um, former Spanish colonies, uh, Philippines and elsewhere, um, what role education, um, literacy, uh, modernization, how these terms come together to shape 
not simply a history of education, but a kind of uh, view of culture that is a driving force. So that is uh, one current project and quite interested in looking at some critical pedagogies, uh, Paulo Freire and others whose work I don't know as well from my early 20th century standpoint. So that's a nice challenge. Um, I also have a project that draws from this. I got really interested in children's drawings, as I mentioned, um, you know, Picasso and Miro and, and others write about and are really engaged and interested with children's art and aesthetics and where it comes from. And so, some of those discussions connect to, and some of those discussions also look to prehistoric art as an example of a kind of a corollary or a, another way to view develop, human development. So um, I became quite interested in Spain's famous uh, caves of Altamira, which were discovered in 1879. And therefore, it's the periods of discovery and popularization of the Altamira caves, in large part, actually coincided with this period of pedology and, and child study. So um, that is more of a coincidence than a, uh, a causation, of course. Um, so it's, I'm not really approaching it from uh, history of education angle, but that is where my interest in it comes from. So uh, from childhood to prehistory, <laughs> but um, I think that there are some really interesting links between the two. Yeah, thank you very much for the interview, Anna. Thank you so much, Josefina. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.